0: The Interchange is brought to you by AES Energy Storage, a pioneering and world leading storage developer and now energy storage solution provider. We are entering a new era, the electrification of everything, and the grid needs to catch up. That means making it into a more distributed, flexible, and cleaner network. AES Energy Storage is helping unlock the true power of the electricity system with Advanceon. Advancion is a battery-based energy storage platform that helps utilities modernize their power systems rapidly and at a much lower cost than traditional infrastructure. AES brings 30 years of power sector experience to the storage industry, delivering the most reliable, safest, and best-performing storage solutions. Advancion can handle any application and it's always instantly available without the need to burn fuel or invest in expensive peaking generation or other infrastructure to meet flexibility or reliability needs. It's time to unlock the full potential of the electric power system. That means building a new energy network, transforming the grid with energy storage, accelerating renewables, and electrifying everything. That is the vision and mission of AES Energy Storage. Learn more about AES's offerings by visiting aesenergystorage.com interchange that's AES Storage.com slash interchange from green tech media this is the interchange a weekly conversation on the global energy transformation I'm Stephen Lacey we're in Scottsdale Arizona this week having lots of conversations at our 10th annual solar summit and I'm sitting down with my regular co-host shale Khan who is our Senior Vice President here at Greentech Media. Hello, Shale. Hey, Stephen. It's
1: great to be in an enclosed room with no windows in beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona.
0: Well, we just had a really interesting interview with a top executive in the solar industry, Lynn Jurich, who is the co-founder and CEO of Sunrun. And we sat down with her after I talked to her on stage. And on stage, I had a discussion with her about industry growth rates, customer acquisition costs, um, the long-term value to consumers, how she messages the company to investors. And we talked a lot about the short-term drivers in residential solar, which I think are mixed, and maybe you can speak to some of the conditions that are flatlining growth in residential solar. But we sat down and had this conversation about the long-term picture for Sunrun, which I thought was also very enlightening.
1: Yeah, Sunrun's a, a really interesting company right now because basically whatever sort of major trend you want to identify in residential solar, Sunrun is a counterexample and successful at it. So I'll give you three examples of that. One is that residential solar right now in the U.S. is uh, shrinking, if if not flat in some cases. So in the first quarter of this year, we just reported this, residential solar was down 17% over the first quarter of last year. That basically has never happened for residential solar before. And it's you know partially due to California rains and things like that, but it's also just a tougher time for residential solar. And yet Sunrun was up 23% year over year in the first quarter. So they're growing while the market broadly uh, is flat to down. The market broadly is shifting a little bit from third-party ownership, from PPAs and leases toward loans. Sunrun, not so much. They're still they're doing loans a little bit, but they're big believers in third-party-owned residential solar, so they're still mostly selling PPAs and leases. The market broadly is shifting from the big players, the national installers, toward what everybody calls the long tail of local smaller installers. And they're all in aggregate gaining share, except for against Sunrun, who's gaining its own share. Um, So Sunrun's just a really interesting company in like this moment in residential solar because they're bucking all the trends successfully. But also one of the reasons I think they've been successful at that, and we talked about this with Lynn a little bit, is just having a long-term orientation. So we were interested to chat with her a little bit about how she thinks about the long-term, and what is solar eventually to customers? How does that evolve the grid and the utility business model? And sort of the big questions that we face, because I think we can we can spend too much time focused in on what's happening right at this moment and and lose sight of the long-term trajectory that is reshaping electricity.
0: You can tell that she really enjoyed talking about the long-term, too, because she's so mired in these investor calls and in negative news, There are a lot of factors, I think, conspiring against residential solar right now. And in particular, Sunrun. So the Wall Street Journal just reported that there's this SEC investigation of SolarCity and Sunrun's cancellation rates. And many financial analysts have come out and said, this is kind of bogus. This is not a a metric that we really care about. The reported numbers are megawatts installed. And so there's really no, like, financial engineering here that's concerning. But but this is something that Sunrun has had to defend in public. And you can, when I talked to Lynn, both on stage and before this conversation, you can sense her frustration of having to talk about a lot of those short term stories, many of which are like important questions to ask, you know, and we talked about those on stage, but I think she was excited about thinking about you know, a decade on and what kind of company Sunrun wants to be, which you can't often talk about on, you know, quarterly investment calls.
1: Right. Unless you're Elon Musk and then you can kind of get away with talking about the long term and everybody props up your stock price in the short term. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. You know, it's it's a weird time in the in the public eye as a Solar company, and especially if you're Sunrun, because again, like your your peers, the other major publicly traded residential solar companies are going through sort of massive tumult. Uh, both Vivint Solar and Solar City, now part of Tesla, like that's all huge change. And then you've had companies like Sungevity going out of business. So, you know, she's I'm sure in most public conversations, she's got to be a little bit on the defensive, despite the fact that you know by most if not all accounts Sunrun's doing pretty well and just i'll just add my perspective on that SEC investigation this is the SEC supposedly investigating whether Sunrun and SolarCity both um should be reporting cancellation rates so once a customer signs a contract for an installation how how many of those customers then cancel before the installation actually takes place and whether for some reason if they haven't been disclosing that to investors whether that um is I guess, something the SEC should crack down upon. And I think
0: that's... A n- and a lot of people have run with this narrative yeah. and and, it, and it implied that these companies are doing something really wrong and fleecing customers. I, I do think it's an interesting question nonetheless. And you asked Lynn this on stage, like, okay, so setting
1: aside the SEC investigation, which which hopefully goes nowhere... Is a 40% cancellation rate like reasonable? Yeah, is it acceptable to you as yeah, a CEO. Right. And, and what can you do to drive that down? I mean, part of that, I think, has to do with timelines. So if you sign a contract for solar and then it takes six months for somebody to actually install it, the, every day that you've got there makes you more likely to cancel that contract. Anything could happen in the meantime. Also, it has to do with sales tactics, probably, right? Like, do you feel totally comfortable at the moment when you are signing that contract such that you are 100% confident you want to go ahead with it for the next couple of months while you wait for the installation? Or, you know, and this is where like things like door-to-door sales tactics can go awry. You can get sold on something by a very effective door-to-door salesperson who's incentivized to sell you the project. And then, you know, you shut the door and you're like, wait a minute, what did I just sign up for? I got to talk to my husband or my wife and make sure that, you know, everybody's on board with this and, oh, wait, I didn't think about when my roof replacement's going to be or something like that. So, you know, there's, there are ways to
0: improve that, I
1: think. But again, it's just not something the SEC needs to investigate.
0: Finally, you you know, you mentioned how different so- so, uh, Sunrun is compared to other national installers. And I wonder if this is a moment where we can truly start to compare the success of the SolarCity versus the Sunrun model. So we talk a lot about the long tail of installers eating away at the market share of national installers. And what Sunrun has done is partner with third-party local installers and basically raise money and package the services around that solar and then use channel partners to install the solar. So they're riding that long tail. SolarCity is completely vertically integrated and has had a growth at all costs model. And you're starting to see... Uh, or before they got acquired by Tesla, the company was suffering because it had to moderate growth rates and investors were punishing the company. And now all of a sudden Sunrun is creeping up, showing, you know, 15, 20% growth rates. They're they're doing well. Um, Is this a point in time where we can start to compare the companies on an apples to apples basis and say, um, we are going to know which national model is successful or not?
1: Well, look. Two things. First of all, Sunrun has a hybrid model, so they do both. You know, they do direct installations themselves, and they have partners who do installations. So you know, you can make a strong argument that they benefit from whichever direction the market is heading in. They can do more direct installations themselves, or they can do more through smaller partners. They've got that going for them. That said, Lynn actually made a point on stage that I totally agree with, which is that we spend too much time looking at a current trend and assuming that that is going to be where it ends up, right? So for a long time, it was like SolarCity, Sunrun, Vivint, and Sungevity and NRG Home Solar gaining a lot of market share. And so everybody's like, ah, you know, it's going to be 10 installers in the future, not a thousand, and they're going to take over the whole market and now the reverse is happening right lots of little installers gaining share relative to the big guys and everybody says "Ah, oh, it's all going to be the long tail and like it, you know maybe a pendulum that just swings back and forth you could say the same thing with financing mechanisms so i'm not ready to look at this moment in time given the current trends in the market especially the company specific stuff like what happened when tesla bought solar city and kind of reoriented the strategy i'm not ready to look at that and say this tells us something about which model makes more sense i think the market you know it's going to go through fluctuations and we're just we have a certain direction right now we may turn in a couple of years
0: all right well let's hear from lynn again this is our conversation with sunrun co-founder and ceo lynn jurich enjoy
1: so i'm interested to talk about sort of the long-term future of residential solar and then everything else that might start to get attached to it. As you mentioned, actually, in the presentation a little bit earlier this morning on stage, you know, we're at something like 35% penetration of residential solar in Hawaii, but most of the country is below 1%. So one question, I guess, to kick us off is if you're thinking 10, 20 years out, as I'm sure you are when you get a chance for Sunrun, um, how do you imagine that this proliferates do we end up with you know 30% penetration also in california and massachusetts and new york but you know iowa just gets started in 2025 or does this really end up being a 50 state market mm-hmm. soon
2: first of all thank you for asking a long term question i appreciate that we often get so stuck in the you know short term noise that i think we miss this bigger Massive structural shift that's happening, and ah, the
0: joys of being a public company—you
2: know it—and um, and that's really what intrigued me, brought me to this industry in the first place. Was you know my undergraduate degree at Stanford was in science and technology, and how technologies ship and you know shape. Uh, and shift societal institutions. And when you see pattern after pattern of things moving from centralized to distributed, you, your sort of pattern recognition goes off. And the thing that I loved about solar so much beyond that, that it was clean, and that I'm a, you know, f- I'm a very passionate outdoors person. But what I loved about it was, I said, this is distributed. That's what's so disruptive about it, is that it it now negates the need to have monopoly energy generation. And so if the cost curves can get where they need it to be, this will just reshape that institution. And that's what I think we're seeing happen. And it's only recently that now storage is becoming more viable. You know, we, we kind of had hope everyone liked it. It, you know, it is, um, you know, obviously hydrocarbons historically have stored energy more efficiently, but when we can do that now with batteries, that was kind of the missing link. So I, um, am, you know, I, I, I you know, I can stop there and, and wait for a follow up, but I do see this massive shift shift towards distributed, which, um, I think is going to surprise people with how fast it happens. It- is that
0: core to your philosophy, the idea of customer choice and challenging um, monopolies, or is it more of an environmental message or a combination of both? What is your guiding philosophy when you look at those consumer drivers?
2: Absolutely. Well, one of the reasons why I was attracted to that residential segment is because um, I believe the change will be driven by competition, by choice, by politics, by what people want, um, you know, because these are really entrenched institutions that, you know, have these, you know, these like political tentacles. And so you really need to win over the hearts and minds of the public, prove to them that there's value here in order to drive this sort of change, because it's going to be hard to drive that change from within when we have a structure that, um, you know essentially gets paid more money to build more that's a that's that's there's not a lot of incentive to challenge that and so we liked residential from that you know the the constituency and um and that is just more fun frankly you know to to be able to offer something that we love to our friends and family um and you know the other aspect of it is that we you know at, at least in the u s homeowners pay more money per kilowatt hour than businesses do and so where are you going to disrupt first you know where is the value proposition going to be strongest first it's going to be on the home and then i think that the third reason was from a business model standpoint i believe that um it was a better business because i believe that we could build entry barriers into our company that you couldn't do as just sort of a developer where it's just going to be a cost of capital um, type, um, you know, we have to innovate, we have to find distribution channels, we have to build a brand, we have to have a good service relationship with our homeowners, you know, we have to build a an automated infrastructure so that we can process each new customer without a lot of friction. So I felt that that would also create a better long-term business. And so for all those reasons, we deliberately went after this residential segment. And I have to tell you guys, when we started the company 10 years ago, every, everyone told us it wouldn't work. They said, residential won't scale. And we said, guess what? Once it does, it's going to be the unstoppable force.
1: You mentioned the sort of so many different markets becoming more distributed, you know, and this being an example of that. And that's definitely true. One of the things that I've always struggled with, people use the the cell phone, the mobile phone analogy a lot, right? We've gone from this like centralized telecommunications architecture to one where it's decentralized and, and mobile phones totally replaced landlines, at least for most people uh but the other thing that happened as part of that that is where the the metaphor always sort of hits a barrier for me is that we pay more now for cell phones than we ever paid for landlines right we get a better service we get more for it but we're willing as customers to spend more on it and i wonder whether ultimately that ever becomes the case in energy will we End up with such better service that we're willing to pay more for energy as a result, or is this always going to be reliant on savings? The next thing has to be more savings, or it doesn't work.
2: Both are important, and, and I get how the analogy isn't isn't totally perfect, but absolutely both ha- both are important. And I think your new, you know, the the new consumer, you know, we'll see what the value system is of the millennials coming up. But if you if you if you do polling and you do research, will is the value system such that if there's a Maybe you don't have to have savings. Maybe at parity, clean energy is a, is a mainstream choice for people.
1: I think it's also – energy storage is also – especially for residential is the other example of that right now where uh, I think you mentioned this on stage too. For most customers outside of Hawaii and soon in SDG&E territory – Residential energy storage is not a great economic value proposition and yet people are still buying it, right? They care for other reasons, they reliability and backup purposes or reduced reliance on the utility. So there's definitely evidence that some customers will sign up for something cuz it's better even though it's more expensive. But I wonder whether you can get to sort of mainstream adoption that way. Right.
2: No, I don't think so. I mean, main, you know, is that a 10-15% sort of storage attach rate for the backup okay you know, maybe it's somewhere in that zone. Um, but but I think where, we, you know, and getting back to your question on, is it all 50 states? Um, you know, I think as we get a little bit smarter and start to really quantify the, um, the value that we can bring solar in congested areas, mm-hmm. you know, the math may look very different. Right. And so, you know, the, you know, the, consumer choice and the savings ability in uh, California or in New York are going to drive that and going to drive some of the regulatory discovery around that and some of the pilot projects. But then could you imagine a situation where in Iowa, to use the example you gave, um, ne- they need to make a big infrastructure investment and could that be done more cost effectively with targeted, you know, DERs? I think probably yes.
1: Yeah. The one thing I worry about that transition to looking at the actual value of ders especially the locational value somewhere on the grid and and offering a revenue stream or some pricing mechanism based on that is that the places where i've seen good research on this like lbnl did a good study of this a couple of years ago where they looked at the value in the california grid of adding more solar right and there were places where solar would have a ton of value and the economics would be insane if you could just monetize that value but a good chunk of the grid, it wasn't needed, right? There's no distribution system upgrade that's required, or in some cases, like solar could have a net negative impact. So I I guess I wonder whether as we move in that direction, are we going to end up with uh, a market where you really can only sell solar to customers in the areas where the grid needs it, and the other customers are going to get left behind?
2: I don't think so, I, for a couple of reasons. I think um, I would view it more as an opportunity where in those congested areas, there should be an opportunity to deliver even more value above retail Mm -hmm. net meter into the customers. to me, but, but you're still not going to stop the fact that one, just in the U S again, in our value system, the right to generate your own power is something that's meaningfully important to people. Um, And, and I think that, and I think that again, at our penetration levels, the tax on the grid, even at a place that isn't congested, is so minimal that that the societal benefits of the jobs, of the goodwill, of the ability for people to feel like they can control their future with clean energy way outweigh any sort of, you know, negative hit there. And, and then I would also add, we don't know where future congestion is, and we don't know what could happen with EV penetration. And so there's, you know, there's value in making a strong distributed network. From a security, from a reliability standpoint, there's just a lot of, you know, value even that that's tough to quantify that I think would mean, you know, it's the, the choice still sustains mm-hmm. and then we can get, um, you know, more targeted in places above and beyond, right. you know, the choice.
0: So we had a conversation recently with the former head of, uh, Tesla's gr- uh, stationary storage unit and he grew Tesla's stationary storage business, architected the products and the services. And, and he said, you know, at Tesla, and in the storage industry we should be thinking five or six rate cases ahead like when you actually look at 2030 or so it's not that far off if you're thinking long term like a like a tesla for example are you afforded that responsibility when you think long term as a public company or are you kind of mired in thinking about the quarter you know quarterly reporting are you afforded the responsibility to think about what solar looks like for the utility and the customer considering that a decade or a decade and a half is actually not that far off
2: i think it's critical i think it's critical for anyone who wants to build a long-term business and be a major player in this industry so absolutely we look at that now i question the value of you know there's false precision which is a real thing and so um and so it would would i want to put more effort towards um you know shaping what the next six months look like you know, um, and experimenting with with the different pilots and the different business models because we don't really know. I, I think that's a better use of resources than, you know, sort of false precision five or six rate cases out. But I think you you need to have that long-term orientation in our business. I mean, we're in an infrastructure energy business, so it's, it's a long-term, you know, play. And False I wanna, precision
1: is terrifying to me
2: as an analyst. That's
1: like a, it's a great description of, of what we do for a living.
2: <laughs> and, uh-oh, uh-oh, I offended, I offended the interviewer. No offense, but.
1: man. You found how the, we you found the our weak country. spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to tee off of the grid services piece because um, I, I wonder when you look out a decade and a half, whether you see solar as a, mostly a benefit for the consumer or as a broader grid benefit. And if you see it as a broader grid benefit, then how are you then working with utilities and applying storage to partner with the utility to make money off of those services and be a, a reliable partner for them on the grid?
2: I think it's it's... I think they're intertwined i don't view you know delivering a good customer value or delivering value to the grid as something that can remain really distinct you know for all the reasons that you know we talked about earlier which is you know electricity is a societal you know need and ultimately i believe in sort of market forces and that things are you know somewhat rational and efficient and so you know if you know if the penetration gets so far that it's only benefiting consumers with solar i th- i think that doesn't build the long-term sustainable market so you need to and, and it's like why aren't we taking advantage of all these resources you know it's that we often talk about our bright box product which is our solar plus storage in hawaii as this is a thoroughbred locked in the closet like why if we can communicate with the utility they can we can hold back some of the capacity in the battery and we could add a ton of value so it would be a shame if we weren't in those conversations. And that's why we're so excited about our partnership with National Grid. As these guys are thinking about that. They want to experiment that, with that. They see that it's the future. They're not operating from a place of fear, you know, kibosh it. It's a place of, okay, curiosity. This is the future. Let's figure out how we can build a win win.
0: We'd like to take a moment to extend a big thank you to our sponsor, AES Energy Storage. AES Energy Storage is a world-leading provider of grid-scale battery storage projects. AES Corporation owns $36 billion in energy assets and serves electricity to over 9 million people worldwide. Ten years ago, AES set up its battery business. Since then, the cost of installing grid-scale batteries has dropped nearly 90%, thanks to more efficient installation techniques, lower-cost hardware, and better lithium-ion batteries. This same trend took hold in the computer industry, where rapidly declining data storage costs revolutionized our digital networks. Lithium-ion batteries are now bringing data networks' resiliency and responsiveness to the electricity network by enabling multiple hours of storage. The grid is changing. Fast. and AES energy storage is helping utilities harness the power of battery-based energy storage to make the electric power system cleaner, more flexible, and more reliable visit aesenergystorage.com/interchange to learn more. That's aesenergystorage.com/interchange.
1: Let's talk about that National Grid partnership a little bit cuz I find it I find any time there's a a partnership between a DER a distributed solar company with a utility where they're actually deploying things and testing stuff out, I find that fascinating cuz what you'll learn from it. It's also interesting just from both sort of Sunrun partnering with utility and National Grid partnering with With Sunrun, National Grid sort of, I think has gone through this evolution over the past few years. They they sort of stood up this new energy solutions group and they're getting into a whole bunch of stuff, this being one of the bigger examples of it. So I'm just curious to hear a little bit about like how that partnership evolved. And for anybody who hasn't read about it, can you just sort of walk through what you guys are planning to do?
2: Yeah, sure. So we formed a three-part partnership with National Grid. Um, the first one was a capital investment in our assets, and they, you know, that was really meaningful from a Sunrun shareholder value standpoint, um, which which really validated the unit level economics that we present to Wall Street. The six percent discount rate we use on our contracted cash flow has been, you know, really validated by that um, one hundred million dollar investment from them so it was a that's an investment into assets
1: which like pg and e did with you guys which years PG&E and years did ago. as well right it,
2: you know in the tax equity piece of the structure not the back leverage piece right. not the not the project equity piece um but yes so it was very validating in terms of here's somebody who is willing to um essentially take an interest in our projects f- deep into the cash flows, you know, at the twenty year That's you know, important. plus mark. Which right. is very important. Right. And they were able to earn, you know, a nice return. You know, we've said publicly the return on that sort of equity when you go after the Back leverage in the tax equity, you can earn a 10% return. That's really, you know, that's a really nice return for a lot of people who can't get yield anywhere else. And so it's a really, it's a win-win. It's a nice return, and it's really validating for us in terms of how much our projects are worth, which has been a criticism that we get from investors, and in something still yet to be fully appreciated, I think. So that was one piece of it. Um, the second piece was a co-marketing relationship where we um, are testing whether or not if we co-brand. What kind of lift do we get on customer acquisition costs? And we find we found, you know, early promising results enough to expand that.
1: This is in competitive markets in the Northeast where mm-hmm. National Grid has right. a brand where, presence. where
2: consumers are familiar with the brand. And because that was the question is, you know, people, you know, sometimes will say they don't like their utility. You know, it's like, you know, utility and taxes kind of, you know, stuff. But they trust. There's a trust. There's a, you know, validation that they've chose Sunrun that helps get people um over the the purchase consideration, so there's that, although you know and that's that's you know pilot but going well. And then the third piece is this grid grid services partnership, which is um really r and d. It's really let's put some smart engineers on our side. We know the consumer we're we know what's happening on storage. we know how to you know integrate the inverter and the storage and the PV. They know um you know the the grid side. And so what can we do? How big is this market opportunity? And so we're really, you know, we you know, as part of that, we're trying to start quantifying that and trying to make it real.
1: So is that you're going to deploy a bunch of resources, you're going to play around with aggregating them and providing some value to the grid within national grids territory? and it's, then it's, will it's, anything become public from that or is that all private it, learning?
2: All, all all private now and and um and it's and it's most definitely not just in their regulated territory. Uh-huh. It's it's a it's a how what does this business look like?
1: Right. And so did National Grid come into this partnership saying, "Look, I want to you know here's all the things that i want to do because it is you know I've, i haven't i have seen there have been every individual component of what you're describing exists elsewhere and yet i don't think there's any other partnership that has all of those components together
2: so comprehensive i agree you know i will it is interesting to me though that the and i think you may be covered this but there have been i think 42 utilities that have invested in der's and it's continually been increasing and it was a billion dollars last year so i think you know that to me is another sign that um, you know, there's a little bit of a disconnect of the long term, the long term, you know, sustainability of this market from what, you know, maybe you might read in the popular press versus what people who know the business are really investing in and putting money behind. So I think that's a proof point there. But I think National Grid, I think he, you know, we can't, you know, necessarily speak for their strategic intention. But I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, the same things I'm talking about, which are, okay just let's go big picture this distributed shift makes so much sense i'm in the energy business let's not be the you know horse and carriage guys that miss the railroad
1: right yeah so you mentioned we we published this data a little while back on utility companies investing in der companies right and so you said 42 individual utilities like 2.9 billion dollars total billion dollars of that just in the last year so that gives off this impression we've found this since we published this that utilities are all bought in Right. And I think some really are, especially European utilities who are like facing destruction imminently. So they're all, you know, desperately investing across the DER spectrum to figure out what the next business model will be. And then you have some utilities in the U.S. like National Grid, who are a little more progressive and forward thinking on this stuff. But there are also 3000 utilities in the U.S., most of whom have done nothing in this space. And I'm curious, as you go around the country to the places where Sunrun operates, like what is the spectrum of how utilities at this point in time approach distributed distributed resources in general
2: i think it's rare I always go back to this. Are you operating out of fear or are you operating out of, you know, curiosity? It's one of my life mantras and I really try to run a company where we're in the curiosity zone and we're not in the fear zone and we're not too attached to being right. But I find that because I find that, you know, a lot of the problems in society and in our institutions come from when people are just attached to being right. But that's a really strong human emotion and and if you're in an I, and I and I relate to it and if you're in an industry where you're responsible for reliability and you're providing a public good, and, and there's like that's that's a, you know that's there's a lot of passion there's there's a lot of emotion there and so I think it really does take you know a unique set of people to be the first people to say okay yes this is scary yes I'm faced with all this infrastructure spend and what's happening to low growth in my area but you know that doesn't mean you can bury your head in the sand but you know human nature is to bury your head in the sand or maybe fight it or maybe you know hold on to it and and so I think you know what do we expect.
1: You know, uh,
2: I'm a pragmatist.
1: (laughs) No, it's been interesting, right? I think a lot of utilities have wanted to figure out how to approach DERs for years, you know, and they've struggled to figure out they've had a classic innovator's dilemma problem, like they've tried to figure out how to go about doing that. And so some of them have said, okay, I have an unregulated arm, I'll let my unregulated arm do some stuff so pg and e will invest in some assets or you know nextera will buy smart energy capital or something like that but that doesn't necessarily breed through to the regulated business which is the thing that is sort of under threat to the extent that there is a threat so some of them then have started these new energy solutions groups or whatever they call them some innovation group and and even there you know it's hard to change this like 100 year old incumbent sort of company that like you said has like a core mandate of reliability for customers so i wonder you know how you think utilities are going to come around? What, like, what's the mechanism internally in a utility to to figure out what the solution well, is? Well, you know,
2: I think it's done at the regulator level. I think the, you know, regulators are forced to do it uh, by right. regulators, right? And 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 you know, some of the regulators who are um, you know forward thinking on this are going to start to pave the way. You know, the California, New York type pilot programs, and we'll start to get real data on it and you know, increasingly, regulators are going to, you know, look to that as a solution. So I, you know, I think it'll take potentially a little bit of time, but um, I don't think it's going to be, I think it'll be faster than people expect, just like what happened with solar costs and just like what's happening with Storage costs. I, I'm optimistic. I have faith and hope in that people, you know, particularly in our, you know, the regulators that I've met with. Many of these guys, they they do want to learn more about this. You know, when I go to these conferences, they want to understand the stuff. They want to be forward thinking. they but you know, they're also told many times the the you know the reliability scare tactic. So they're balancing that and they need to listen to you know the experts in many ways and you know and but I I'm I'm. I'm confident that I you know met with enough of these people that they're they're going to do the right thing ultimately, and the facts are going to be supporting us
0: and now you see more regulators talking about smart rate design so that you proactively solve a problem. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you see the more proactive approach starting to win the day or if it just depends I d- I d- on the state
2: i do and and thank you for asking that question i did i you know it does depend on the state and like anything, you know one of the things i i often caution is clean energy there are a lot of powerful forces that do not want to see us be successful and so we won't win everywhere and one of my you know challenges again with how this industry is covered is every time there's one of these you know issues it it's the sky is falling and it's precedential and it's happening everywhere and that is incredibly frustrating and and to me out of context when you actually look at some of the incredibly forward-thinking places like the california and new york where uh, we are in this mode of creativity and optimism, and so I think that is winning because I think the these are places that people are going to look to as leaders and we 're going to start to you know get real data out there and But at the same time, are we really fighting what feels like an organized effort to make our lives harder yes that 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 is but that is a reality of you know change.
1: So let's talk a little bit about what's going on right now in residential solar, much as we'd love to talk about the long term forever. Uh, so it's a weird time, I think for residential solar, there had been this like extraordinarily rapid growth rate for years, which then slowed down some in in 2016 and in 2017 thus far for the market as a whole has been a pretty rough time, especially in California, we've had these rains that made it hard to install. Um, but also, you know, market changes in California and elsewhere. And so the result is that, uh, as a as a whole, the residential solar market was down seventeen percent in the first quarter of this year versus the first quarter of last year, which is like a has never happened before for for residential solar in, in recent history. And yet, Sun runs up twenty three percent on that same apples to apples comparison. So you're bucking the trend at the moment. So uh, what's your secret?
2: Well, our secret has been we ran the business from the start ten years ago on a you know sustainable business where we're offering value to the consumer and um and value to the company. And so you know for so for a period of time it was you know a, the industry attracted a lot of capital. People were spending a ton of dollars and maybe unnaturally growing the industry for a bit. You know spending more on customer acquisition costs, and that unnaturally i think bumped the growth rate up for a few years and so if you actually take you know some of the players um, who raised you know hundreds of millions of capital if you take them out of the math you actually see that the industry grew 22% um, in 16, um, you know, similar to our Q1 growth rate, and I think there, you know, a lot of the the names that we know publicly that are in the press, um, you know, have been facing these down down quarters, you know, for the reasons I mentioned. But there's a lot of companies that are really growing, and the um, the the size of the market still and the value proposition to, to consumers does support by my math a 20% kegger for 10 years.
0: So we're we're, long, we're past the days of 60% growth. 15-20% is probably where the industry will settle.
2: I don't know. You know, I think it was I think the growth could accelerate again. You know, if we get a, you know, some some great cost reductions as an industry, I think that could accelerate the growth. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we we did see growth acceleration in the past. So if you look at 2014, the market grew 40. 2016, 60. This again is taking the you know larger the players that I mentioned out of the out of the math. But so you did see acceleration in the market growth rate from 14 to 15. Could we see that again? Uh, yeah, I do think so.
1: So you're not mentioning the names, so I will. So we're talking about so in particular SolarCity and Vivint, um, and then to some extent Sungevity, which is now bankrupt. You know all of all of whom have sort of at a minimum dialed back on growth and at a maximum disappeared entirely, and they're, they've raised a lot of money, as did you guys, but have managed to sort of be resilient to it. One of the things that I think has been, sort of impacted the, the fluctuations in growth in residential solar has been in an individual state. There have been a few of these cases where suddenly a state starts to make sense. So all the major installers descend upon that state and it grows extraordinarily rapidly over the course of a couple of years, which then results in some political or regulatory backlash that crashes the market. So we've had these little mini booms and busts in Nevada being the biggest example of it, where it, it sort of makes it hard for a slower growth, sustainable market. So I wonder as the next step of potentially big residential solar markets picks up, like Florida or Texas or, you know, wherever the next big one is, Pennsylvania picking back up. Will we see a more moderate growth rate within those states? And will that avoid the sort of regulatory backlash that then tanks the market for a while before you can recover?
2: Well, I don't know that it's a foregone con- conclusion that you would have the regulatory bash- backlash. But I think you wouldn't have run. had
1: it in Nevada. You might have had it in Nevada either way, actually. But using like a, a different example, I don't know, in Utah, we're having it a little bit right now. I don't think you would have it if we hadn't seen that market grow like 800% in a year.
2: You know, but that was the consumer demand. Hmm. So, you know, how are you going to argue with that? And I think, you know, what you'll see in Nevada hopefully is that, you know, the it will be reversed because that's, you know, again, it's what people want. So, that is an excellent observation in terms of the overall industry growth rate. It can be lumpy. And so that's why I also just given that estates come online, there could be, you know, a regulatory outcome that can be, um, you know, a tailwind or, or a headwind in any given quarter. And so that's why I also caution against, you know, any single quarter growth rate. It may have all these number of very specific factors that have nothing to do with the structural growth rate of the industry that are influencing it because we still are. You know, only really in 15 states and a couple of them are more meaningful than others.
1: That's a a super important point because we're often the ones putting out those numbers. And so it is important context to offer. For example, this decline in Q1 of this year, 17% decline, like a couple of big factors accounted for a lot of that. Rains in California, which is not a long term phenomenon. That's a that's a big factor in the California market, which declined more than any other major market and still represents like half of the residential solar industry and then also company specific stuff solar city dialing back on growth and the tesla integration all of that that makes a big difference in the market because they've been you know a third of the overall market historically so it's true that like a single quarter does not reflect the long-term sort of trajectory of of residential solar
2: appreciate that um that perspective certainly the one that I share, and, and I'm very excited about the position that Sunrun holds in the market right now when you look at, you know, now we're the leading residential solar player, and we look forward to really, you know, leading a long-term oriented business that drives real customer and shareholder value, and I'm really excited about that position, and I'm also excited with what... Tesla's doing and what, and, and, you know, with the, with the innovation they're bringing with the solar roof, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I think it brings a little sizzle to the industry, which is fun. And, um, and, you know, but it, it leaves the big piece of the mainstream market pretty open to us, I think, which, um, which, you know, means the pieces on the chessboard, I think stack favorably for Sunrun.
0: So we just had a conversation on stage and the last question that I wrapped up with was, what are you fearful about in 2017? And you answered with a very respectable answer that you don't run a fear-based business, that you have an optimistic approach, but there are a lot of headwinds here. and We got to be honest about this. So I do want to ask the question again, if there are any big factors that you're worried about in 2017 and then how, as a business leader, as a CEO, how you plan to overcome them or deal with them, or integrate them into your planning. And I'm referring to, of course, things like the Suniva trade case, which could dramatically change the economics of downstream solar, general policy uncertainty on the federal level and in certain states. I, I don't think that we want to ignore some of those headwinds. And again, how are you sort of dealing with those and thinking strategically about them?
2: Right. You know, what I believe is that Sunrun as a company, we're only as strong as all of our employee base and how enthusiastic they are for this business. And so one of the challenges we do have is with so much of this negative coverage all the time, it does get, you know, it can get discouraging to people um, who, and so to me, you know, what do I want to spend a lot of my time and effort on is I want to make sure that we're not, um, getting sucked into this short term, you know, this myopia right now, and that we we are confident that we're on the right long term path. And so I'm, you know, spending a ton of time going out, talking to all the people out in branches in my offices. I'll be out in Scottsdale for our office there later today to continue to remind people that we're doing something great for the world, because when you open up, you know, the Wall Street Journal as an example, and there's, you know, something that talks about a negative customer experience, but when our, you know, 3000 employees every day are trying to do everything it takes to bring a product that people want, that can get very discouraging. So, you know, my challenge as a leader is to, um, you know, pull us out of that.
0: Lynn Jurich is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Sunrun. Thank you so much. We appreciate it.
2: It was a pleasure to be here. It was a fantastic conference and I was thrilled to be a part of it.